This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. I'm co-presenting this edition. I'm Miguel Turan. In this month's edition, we'll be looking at the three big things for 2022 with IFAD's Associate Vice President, Dr. Joe Puri. Also, we check in on how the UN decade of family farming is getting along, plus fish farming in Zambia and Uganda, and we find out what canoes have got to do with climate change in the South Pacific. Coming up, we take a look at soil scanner technology at work and we're taking a trip to the movies where we'll be hearing about farmers on the front line in the Near East and North Africa. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at ifad.org and you can subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. This is Farms Food Future with me, Miguel Turan and Brian Thompson. As we face up to the year ahead, it's good to review what we learned from the past 12 months. Among the main events were the UN Food System Summit and, of course, the UNF C COP26, which took place in Glasgow in November. Food security and, of course, climate change were top of the agenda in 21. IFAD's Associate Vice President, Dr Joe Puri, joined us to take a look and find out what were the three main successes in 2021. I asked her what she made of the past 12 months. We started, of course, the year with the Governing Council, the first ever virtual one, and we adopted the IFAD 12 uh, replenishment report, which set ambitious targets, not just for resource mobilisation, but also those that were operational and organisationally. We have upped our ambition on climate, gender, nutrition, youth, fragile situations, small island developing states, biodiversity targeting. I mean, that might seem like a mouthful, but I think it's important to recognize that there is actually a, a, uh, a narrative in a, that combines all of that together and uh, makes us see this in a strategic sense for the entire institution. Um, additionally, we also have set ourselves fairly high performance targets um, through our results framework on the portfolio. In 2021, we're also decentralizing. What that essentially means is that we are moving to uh, having far stronger presence in the regions and we're expanding our workforce with new positions. And this is primarily so that we can here be far more responsive and agile to the needs of the countries that we serve. If I could single out three successes uh, for 2021, I think the first one would be concluding our uh, 12th uh, replenishment um, really successfully with a high commitment from member states to work towards expanding and deepening our impact. The second would be that we are becoming far more prominent in climate change and we are pivoting especially towards adaptation in a far more intentional way, uh, while highlighting a lot of the successes that we have been able to realize through our work over the past 10 to 15 years. And here I do want to recognize the importance of the Adaptation for Smallholder Farmer Program. And the third one is really laying the groundwork for this decentralization that I just spoke about so that we are able to have at least 45% of our overall staff in regional or in, uh, in country offices. One more thing, you know, 2021 has also been a year of global calls to action, whether the Food System Summit or COP26, IFAD has actually played a very prominent role in both of those. In the Food System Summit, we were the anchor agency for what's called Action Track 4 um, that is coming out of the Food System Summit. And we are um, leading with our partners on setting up platforms um, for public development banks, as well as on living income and um, decent wages um, coalition as we go forward. 
And we're also going to be co-leading on the finance means of implementation. So this is really critical. On COP26, uh, we are essentially highlighting not just our successes across the 12 years, but also across different dimensions of EFAD. And EFAD, I, you know, in my short tenure here, I think this has made me recognize the many splendid thing that EFAD is. In that, I think in climate, what becomes even more important is that we break away these silos of uh, different um, and uh, separate um, sector thinking, and we bring together multidisciplinary, multi-sectoral solutions. And that seems a, like a little bit of a cliche, but in just the way we are organized, for example, there's the Environment, Climate, Gender, Nutrition, Youth and Social Inclusion Division, basically means that we are integrating all of these very key themes in devising solutions for climate adaptation and mitigation. So I think all of this is really coming to bear fruit now. We are taking and we are showcasing our, uh, our huge amount of successes with the private sector, with climate, with indigenous peoples, with job creation and youth, with gender, the gender action labs, uh, with nutrition and behavioral approaches to nutrition with value chain building, with market institutions and constructing new markets, uh, with innovation, with respect to say remittances, as well as with uh, agricultural risk. So there's a lot that we are showcasing. And I think these are all huge successes for EPAC. Yeah, what would you say are, were the main challenges for IFAD in 2021? So, I mean, 2021 is also, you know, facetiously, some somewhat called the non-year, right? Because of the pandemic. So, but the pandemic essentially imposed a lot of challenges, I think, for for IFAD, um, not just organizationally and operationally, in the sense that staff were not able to work together in physical spaces, but I think emotionally as well. But on the other side, uh, the pandemic has also meant that we are working with countries that are witnessing shrinking um, GDPs, gross domestic products. And uh, this is likely to continue. So a lot of estimates say that developing countries will suffer losses of eight to $12 trillion in their economies until 2025 as a result of the pandemic. Uh, so this has definitely been very challenging. Um, IFAD has risen to the challenge. In 2020, uh, of, um, the previous year before this, we launched the Rural Poor Stimulus Facility as a short-term measure to help vulnerable rural people through the crisis so that we could ensure timely access to inputs, information, markets, and liquidity. IFAD has so far approved almost 85 million for 63 projects across more than 70 countries to support 4 million people, all in low income countries and fragile and conflict affected states. We've also repurposed $180 million almost of funding across 37 countries. Um, so yes, there've been challenges for 2021, but I think the key thing that I'm taking away is that we've risen to the challenge. We've been agile, we've been responsive, and that's important. What about the, the coming year, Joe? Where will we see IFAD's focus moving to? So 2022 is the first year of IFAD 12, yeah, of our new replenishment period. It is also a year that is uh, following from uh, both the Food System Summit and COP26, so I really think that 2022 presents a really good opportunity for EFAT to take leadership and to tinker with its global positioning. I think EFAD will become far more active in the climate finance space. We are already seeing this with our increasing targets for climate finance, which uh, we've up from 25%, uh, basically of our portfolio to 40% in EFAT 12. Additionally, we're also going a lot more with the Green Climate Fund and through, and we are raising resources for ISA Plus, really expanding our work on climate change adaptation. And we're looking forward to really establishing ourselves as global leaders in this space because it 
coincides excellently with our overall remit of looking at the rural poor and working with the rural poor and supporting them uh, to reduce their vulnerability and increase their resilience. We're also going to be taking forward the agenda of both the Food System Summit and of uh, COP26 with our updated uh, targeting work, targeting policy as well. Uh, we want to ensure that we keep our focus on rural poor communities, uh, but become far more precise to ensure that no one is left behind. I'm particularly excited and interested in also seeing innovation being at the um, forefront of EPAD's thinking as we go forward. I think uh, both the pandemic as well as, um, as well as climate has made it very clear that we can't keep using older solutions for new problems or problems that we are re recognizing anew, right? Which means that we've got to think very differently, both in terms of the solutions, but also in terms of our financing opportunities. We are a really credible leader in this space. So our impact assessment work, for example, really shows that we are possibly the only institution, and I say this with humility, that uses impact assessments in its portfolio, so uses counterfactual data to show what would have happened in the absence of EFAD investments. So if EFAD investment had not gone in, what would we have lost? And we show that for our entire portfolio. No other multilateral institution does that at a portfolio level. It basically means extreme, we are an extremely credible actor in the space, and I am really keen to see this go forward and to expand in its overall ambition. And last but not least, I think um, we're also looking at new ways of financing, replenishing, and resource mobilization. While we see uh, EFAD going into the innovation space and the climate adaptation space and focusing on generating cutting-edge knowledge in new areas, um, I really think that we can and should be working also on carbon markets and green jobs and renewables, where we actually have all of the tools, we just need to bring it together in a strategic way. That was Joe Puri. We'll be hearing more from her later in this podcast when she looks at how the development finance gap is growing and how we need to change the game as we move ahead in 2022. Up next, we're talking the UN decade of family farming. As we move into 2022, it's time to check in on the UN's decade of family farming launched in 2019. Family farms produce more than 80% of the world's food, but still they are one of the most vulnerable parts of the food chain. The decade looks to create a world where diverse, healthy and sustainable food systems flourish and where rural communities enjoy a higher quality of life, free from poverty and hunger. Pierre Ferrand is FAO's Regional Officer for Asia and the Pacific. I asked him how has the situation in Asia evolved since the start of this project. The decade of family farming has particular relevance in the Asia region. Indeed, Asia and the Pacific has the largest number of family farms in the world. It is home to 74% of world family farmers, with China and India alone representing nearly 60% of the estimated 600 million farms worldwide. So this highlights how important it is for the, for the region. So this has continued under the two first year of the implementation of the UNDFF, with several initiatives at national and regional level, mostly through a contextualization of the global action plan to address local challenges. They promote inter-institutional cooperation Aim at the integration of specific family farmers' issues into policies and strategies related to the wider food and agricultural sector. They also promote the integration of a broader social and environmental sector consideration into dedicated policies for family farmers. So overall, in the region, many policies have been already developed to support family farming over the years, but there is still a need for more coherent public policies and legislation to support family farming. In particular, it is needed an increased pub public investment in agriculture and national agricultural policies that are more sensitive to the realities that family farmers face that can improve farmers' access to agricultural input, financial services, technology, and other necessary resources, but also that ensure and secure access to natural resources, especially land, water, and forestry. 
And the UNDFF in that regard provide a great framework to further encourage and support such transformative policies. Can you highlight some of the challenges faced by youth and women in the southern eastern region of Asia and mention some activities you implement to deal with them? Well, the um, family farmers in South Asia produce at least 70% of the food in the region, with women putting in as much from 60 to 98% of farm work. However, mm. women face a lot of difficulties. They often have limited access to productive resources and opportunities, especially in regards to land, livestock, labor, education, extension and financial services and technology. And similarly, youth in agriculture is also a critical issue. 50% of the unemployed in the region are youth, and they are less and less attracted by agriculture, despite its potential for job creation, and also raising concern about food security. In order to address such challenges, some recommendations of action have been formulated. And for instance, promoting gender equity in family farming and the leadership role of rural women in South Asia. We can mention in particular activity that will contribute to recognize women farmer as equal player in family farming. So this could be done through the support of the amendment of national policies and program resulting in full engagement of women in agri-food supply chain, increased participation in the decision-making process, greater leadership role, and enhance access to social rights, education, health, and social protection for women. We can also mention other areas of importance regarding women, especially to improve women farmers' agency and increase access to natural resources and reproductive assets, information, infrastructure, financial services, and market. And finally, also to reduce all kinds of violence against women and girls in family farming and rural areas. Now, looking at, uh, at the youth in particular, we can highlight uh, some priority areas, like to support youth acting as agent of sustainable development and being involved in rural development through family farming campaign, uh, to develop inclusive mechanisms to promote youth participation in decision-making processes, and finally, to develop and implement public policies and locally adapted facilities for the support of farm succession, but also farm startup. Okay, next question. Tell us about how have you worked with intergovernment bodies to advance family farming and support inclusive multi-stakeholder processes? So intergovernmental agencies like the South Asia Association for Regional Cooperation, the SARC, are instrumental in advancing family farming since they offer the right platform to encourage multi-stakeholder and inclusive policy dialogue and cooperation. So with their active participation and in close collaboration with the Asia Farmer Association for Sustainable Rural Development and the International Cooperative Alliance for Asia Pacific, a first virtual uh, regional consultation meeting addressing the, the UNDFF and on uh, formulating strategies and action plan to strengthen smallholder family farmers in South Asia. And this initial regional consultation marked an important step in elaborating jointly a draft regional action plan. Thanks to Pierre Ferrand. He also told us that future goals include ramping up communications around the decade to reach even more people across the region. You can find out more by going to fao.org forward slash family dash farming dash decade. Please tune in to any of our 28 podcasts and nearly 260 reports from across the world of Farms Food Future. In episode 25, we found out just how crops will be affected by climate change. In episode 26, we did a deep dive into the blue economy in East and Southern Africa. And in episode 27, we heard from IFAD's Goodwill Ambassadors, Idris and Sabrina Elba. Next month, in episode 29, we'll be celebrating International Women's Day and looking at gender-focused farming projects from around the world. Coming up, it's all getting a bit fishy. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Miguel Turan and Brian Thompson. First Wave Group is a vertically integrated fish farming business with production operations in Zambia and Uganda. That means it works at various levels, producing fish food from locally sourced grains, to fish production with tilapia, to retail through its chain of shops. Its products also sold throughout East and Southern Africa. 
First Wave's co-CEO is Tembwe Mutungu. He told me more about how First Wave combines production and sustainability. I think, first of all, is uh, really just about us being very specific uh, about what our solutions uh, addresses, and that is uh, urban protein food security uh, for African uh, African markets. And so we uh, do in intensive uh, cage culture uh, in uh, local uh, local water bodies uh, in Zambia and, and Uganda. And we are very much a local for local business. And so that means that uh, most of our inputs and raw materials uh, are produced locally. Um, you know, we produce uh, tilapia fish uh, in, in Zambia and, uh, you know, the maize, uh, the soya, the wheat bran, uh, and, and really well over, um, you know, well over 90% of the inputs are actually all locally, uh, locally sourced. Um, and so again, you know, locally sourced, locally, uh, locally consumed. Um, and, you know, then that sort of combined with the merits uh, of aquaculture uh, overall in terms of just thinking about what what is the most or what are the most sustainable solutions for addressing protein food security when you're thinking about that from an emissions perspective, from a water use perspective, uh, from a land use perspective, uh, or even just thinking about competing demands uh, demands for uh, for food. Um, you know, when you think about grains, whether that's being for uh, food or or fuel uh, or feed, <laughs> for that matter. Uh, in this case, we're you know we're taking grains, applying them to feed. But naturally, tilapia across every single one of those uh, dimensions uh, really just beats um, uh, beats all of the other solutions. Whether you're talking about chicken, or you're talking about beef, uh, or, or you're talking about pork, um, again, and that means that um, you know uh, lower emissions, lower water usage, uh, much much lower land uh, land footprint. Um, and, and then just lower, you know, uh, better feed conversion ratios uh, naturally. And so less grain uh, is used for every kilo of fish um, uh, produced. Um, you know, just maybe to give you a picture, picture of that, uh, say just on the, you know, on the, on the land footprint side, again, we're, um, you know, our, our business model is focused on, on cage culture in, in warm water bodies. Each 25 meter diameter cage uh, produces uh, the equivalent uh, to um, what would be required uh, for something like a 20 hectare land footprint, and that's just for tilapia. Uh, when you start moving on to um, you start moving on to uh, other forms uh, forms of livestock, other forms of protein, uh, really the you know the numbers uh, just ratchet up very quickly. And so again, when we're thinking about growing populations and thinking about what is a truly sustainable solution for addressing urban protein food security, um, you know we believe that uh, you know uh, tilapia-based aquaculture for the African continent is uh, is actually the best solution, uh, at least as far as urban protein food security is concerned. I think there's some other models that are interesting for rural protein food security, uh, but that's uh, uh, that is what our our view is. So, how does your business work with small scale farmers? So, I mean, I um, I would say that there uh, there are there's direct engagement as well as in, indirect engagement, um, and a lot of that is largely. Um, uh, upstream in in the supply chain, so that's on the on the grain sourcing uh, the grain sourcing side, and uh, you know the work that we do there uh, is um, again you know, direct procurement uh, from uh, from small scale farmers. And what I mean by direct procurement is that uh, we work with aggregators, work with distributors, we set standards, um, uh, work with them, do training uh, of those um, you know uh, of those aggregators such that they are able to feed directly into our supply chain. Uh, and that also results in a, a little bit of disintermediation as well, um, you know, just in terms of improving the value that can be captured by small-scale farmers, whilst ensuring uh, that we can maintain the quality. I think a, an issue for a lot of uh, a lot of producers or a lot of processors is that even if they have the will uh, and the desire to support uh, support small-scale farmers, it's very hard to manage. When you're thinking about quality and quality standards, how do you make sure that you know you're not getting, um, you know, uh, aflatoxins in your uh, coming through in your maize? Because I mean, again, that's not just for human consumption; that's important for for our fish as well. And so, we do, um, you know, a fair amount of uh, fair amount of work there. Um, but you know, we're also 
adopting uh, you know adopting different different models and exploring different different models. So thinking about um, you know working uh, working with some of the uh, the primary process processors such as the soya uh, soya millers uh, or even um, larger uh, traders and, and aggregators. And just again thinking about how we uh, set standards and expectations uh, for how small scale farmers are participating in the value chain, uh, especially on the upstream uh, on the upstream side. Uh, one thing that we haven't um, you know uh, that we have, haven't still haven't figured out uh, figured out just yet is how to um, work with small-scale farmers just further downstream, or just in and around the production side. And I think the you know uh, the challenge there has to do with the nascency uh, nascency of the industry, um, and uh, you know uh, the the fact that it is the business or the industry still remains you know relatively capital intensive. That was Tembwe Mutungu. We'll be hearing more from him later in this podcast. Up next, we have news from Tonga. This is Farms Food Future with me, Miguel Turan and Brian Thompson. How can the simple act of carving wood provide an answer to a problem facing the community on Iua Island in the South Pacific? This small island is part of the archipelago of 172 coral and volcanic islands which make up Tonga. Its picturesque location hides some unpleasant facts. Iua is also home to high unemployment with climate change negatively affecting the fragile balance of natural resources. Locals on the island are learning to carve out canoes and the benefits are many. It helps the environment, provides employment to young islanders and gives them a cost-effective way of catching fish. The canoe building programme is run by the Mordi Tonga Trust over a number of islands and is funded by IFAD and the Tongan government. As we find out, not only does fishing provide revenue for Tongan communities, but it also has health benefits. Many Tongan islands are plagued by obesity, with over 90% of the population being classed as overweight. Crystal Ake is with the Mordi Tonga Trust, and she told me more. Uh, Tonga has a huge health crisis that centers around non-communicable diseases. So we have the one of the most highest rates of obesity in the world, with a staggering number of up to 90% of our Tongan adults being overweight. Uh, 60% are obese. 40% of the population have type 2 diabetes. A uh, large case of morbidity rates are also identified as preventable deaths. Uh, of which can be traced back to the underlying uh, nutrition issues. So this really demonstrates the severity of nutrition crisis uh, that's happening here in Tonga. Uh, our traditional diets have seen sudden shift towards a more westernized diet. So that means there's a lot of highly processed uh, foods in our diets that contains very much, uh, very little nutrients, if at all, that is very much needed for human development. Um, and because of our high dependency on imported foods, it's very, very worrying for health officials. And in light of the pandemic, it's an issue that we're trying to solve. Why has the, the Modi Tonga Trust encouraged islanders on Ewa to start building canoes themselves? All the interventions that we have on the ground have to link back to community development plans. We were very fortunate enough to have had uh, the world-renowned uh, master carver, Mr. Sonny Tidone Poloto in Tonga, and it was his willingness and assistance uh, to carry out these traditional carving trainings that we were able to implement them to the islands of Ewa, Apai, and Babau. And so the communities identified in their CDPs, there were several needs that intersected with the training. For example, the island of Ewa, uh, identify the need to develop activities and skills for youth at risk because there were a lot of uh, high school dropouts and also they wanted to create job opportunities for the unemployed men. So there were interests uh, from Ewa to have these skills of canoe carving so that the youth can replicate these works for sports activities and to reestablish traditional sports such as canoe races that Tongans um, had engaged in in the past. They also saw an opportunity where the skills can also be created uh, for ecotourism operators. 
Uh, for the islands of Wabao and Hapai, they identified the same priorities as Eua, but also included the need to address how the communities have very little uh, fishing equipment. So naturally, as a result, these canoes meet very important development needs, such as food and nutrition security, natural resource management, and of course, climate adaptation. So how has the, the project been going um, and what do you expect, um, how do you expect it to develop in the future? The training has been very beneficial in different aspects for various reasons uh, to Ewa, Habai, and Mabau. Uh, I'd be remiss to not include that these islands are vastly different in geological characteristics. Uh, Ewa is a very elevated island with very few low-lying coastal points. Habai Islands are very low-lying islands, widely dispersed, save for a few that are highly elevated. And Mabau is generally highly elevated with a few communities in low-lying areas, but nowhere as near um, as Habai and mainland Tongataku. So the training was very important for Ewa target communities because of the acquisition of traditional knowledge and skills. And the same can be said for Mabau. Hapai is a fishing community. Um, and so the skills and the actual canoes were very valuable to them to continue providing food for the households, uh, income generation opportunities, and as well as traveling. Um, during the training, the Habai participants revealed that the canoes will help revive traditional artisanal fishing methods, such as octopus luring that was slowly fading out. Uh, the canoes aren't only opportunities for fishing to supply sustenance or generate income. It also can be used by the Habai community for traveling short distances from island to island where possible and can even travel out to larger ships. Um, one of the participants also said that it's also a great way for the community members to stay fit as the canoes require full body mechanics to operate, unlike uh, modern small boats that are fitted with motors. That was Crystal Ake of the Mordi Tonga Trust. And you can find more about them at Tonga as one word, dot T-O. Up next, we're talking the power of communications. Back in the summer, EFET's Near East, North Africa and Europe division was one of the main sponsors of the Sicily Movie Festival. Sponsoring the EFET Copeam Film Award, they aim to bring stories from agriculture communities to the fore. Working with the NEN division, Sarah Kuaku explained how important it was for these stories, which often go untold, to reach a broader audience. She also explained how important it was to be in Sicily for this particular film festival, which lies really on the border with the region she works in and deals with many of the same problems, particularly around climate change. Rural communities are often not on the spotlight and that's not right because they are so important for us. We know they're important for, uh, to produce the food that we eat. They are the cornerstone of our food systems. And they, they're also the guardians of all the natural resources, the land, the water. And, um, and then at the same time, they're also the most affected by all the challenges that we, we just mentioned, climate change, for instance. And so it's really important that uh, we tell their stories and we listen to their needs and respond to them. So um, what are the main threats to agriculture, would you say, including climate change, in the Mediterranean region? Uh, we, we mentioned climate change already and um, we, we often mention these uh, challenges in the countries where we work as the three C's, so the climate, the conflict and the COVID now, the pandemic. So let me talk about briefly about fragility and conflict. This is a really uh, one of the, the key challenges that we're facing in, uh, in our region. We have countries like Libya, Syria. Uh, Lebanon, which have political and social instability really jeopardizing the long-term development in agriculture. And then the COVID, now it's COVID, but it could be in any other pandemic. And in uh, communities and countries where you have uh, really weak institutions, it's difficult to be able to face uh, external shocks like that. So, what are you doing to try and make the lives of small-scale farmers better? 
So as IFAD, um, you may know that uh, we, we really we focus on the most vulnerable people in the most remote areas. And so they are our, the target of our, the project that we finance through the government. And uh, so we try to, to make sure that they, they are resilient enough to face all these external shocks that may be natural disasters or also man-made uh, shocks like uh, conflict. And uh, so uh, we, what we do is, um, in terms of agriculture, for instance, we, in, we try to provide them with the capacities to improve productivity, to access markets, and to, to be able to, um, to, to be resilient. And uh, a key component in uh, all our projects is to make sure that uh, the results are sustainable over time. What? Would you say is your main message to, to stakeholders to help the region you work in? I would say, that based on what I already told you, um, it's important to keep small rural producers at the centre of all actions and all decisions because they are really key for our food systems, they are key to protect our natural resources and they are those that are most affected by the, the, the recent challenges. What is your main message you want to get across regarding your work in the region? What do people need to understand? Um, yeah, I think people need to understand uh, that as um, the Near East, North Africa, Europe division, we work across uh, three to four different regions with different characteristics. So we work in low-income countries, but also in uh, upper-middle-income countries where we have uh, huge pockets of poverty that we're trying to address. We work in countries affected by conflict and fragility and others that are more stable. Some affect more affected by climate change, by droughts, others affected by floods. So each uh, sub-region in, in which we work has uh, its own set of, uh, of challenges that we are trying to address with tailored uh, projects. That was Sarah Kwaku from IFAD. You can find out more about IFAD's work in the Near East, North Africa and Europe division on the IFAD website. And you can find out who won the IFAD CoPM Film Award at Sicily Movie as oneword.it. Coming up, we're talking South-South Triangular Cooperation. Now it's time for our second report on IFAD's work with the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, or AGRA, on South-South Triangular Cooperation. In Africa, increasing productivity in the face of declining soil fertility is a challenge that calls for active and innovative solutions. At present, many farmers lack on-site information and base their fertilizer selections on intuition or the advice of local agro-dealers without knowing the actual nutrient status of their soils. This results in a mismatch between applied and required nutrients, leading to yield stagnation and environmental degradation. In 2016, AgroCares launched the AgroCare Soil Scanner in Kenya, which is a handheld device that facilitates quick and easy soil nutrition testing. It provides farmers, even those with no prior experience in nutrient testing, with quick on-site access to key soy nutrients. Agra's Amuraya in Nairobi spoke to Mkami Gitao from AgriCares. She asked her about the AgriCare soil scanner. Well, the scanner is, is a business tool. So depending on what an organization wants to drive, what its objectives are as far as uh, serving its smallholder farmers is concerned, then um, they can look at it one, as, as a business tool, where they are able to offer soil testing services, either to a network of farmers, um, and, and most of the times it works very well where the services are bundled up. We have input suppliers who really want to make informed decisions when they are um, selling or distributing inputs uh, based on what the soil requires. How is it um, aligned with let's say youth in agribusiness or youth who wants to get into agribusiness, how can it be used by the youth? Because this is technology. The scanner connects via a mobile application. So through the mobile app, the youth is able to test the soil. Yeah, from the scanner connecting through Bluetooth, he's able to test the soil and he's quickly able to advise the farmer. 
What are the cost benefits for the person who acquires the scanner? How do they make their business? So for the person who acquires the scanner, um, one of the things as agrocares we've done to, um, to make it sustainable is to plug our service providers, this is anyone who invests in the scanner or the LIAB, into platforms where there's demand creation for, for soil testing. For instance, at the projects that I earlier mentioned when we were introducing the World Bank projects in Arig and Kesa, where they already have a network of farmers. So we uh, plug in our service providers and they are able now together, working uh, together with the counties, they are able now to provide soil testing for farmers. The scanner, uh, the hardware is 3,000 euros and uh, then it comes in with an unlimited renewable, yearly renewable license of 1,800 euros. So that's the initial investment is 4,800 euros. Within, if you have about 600 samples, um, the business person should be able to uh, break even and be able to uh, recoup uh, his initial investment. So uh, how do we make sure that the scanners are sustainable in the future? So as I mentioned, one is to make sure that we plug in um, the service providers. These are the ones who've invested in the scanners. To, as long as we're able to build it around a business model, where we're creating uh, demand for soil testing, and we are also bundling it up uh, with other, other services, then it becomes uh, more sustainable. The youth or the service provider will acquire the scanner. How do they reach the farmers and what kind of farmers do we take? Uh, as I said, we ride on existing uh, structures and some of these existing structures, as I mentioned, are the county governments who already have uh, programs uh, with development partners. There are also partners uh, who are running projects, like for instance, Sukafina, who is a coffee trader here based in Kenya. They already have a network of about 50,000 farmers. So the technology sounds exciting for both the, the owners or the person who's running the technology on the ground and also for the farmers because they'll get access to um, some education on agriculture, some trainings, and also connection to other farmers in the same regions, etc. Um, how transferable, though, is this technology to other African countries? Like, is it only working in Kenya only? Considering you had mentioned, like, we can also work, you can also work in countries that are not calibrated. We are currently present in 14 African countries, which are calibrated, and we are exploring also countries that are not calibrated. However, we are also in discussions with the partners in these countries that are not calibrated, where uh, we see... Uh, different partners, for instance, in Zambia, in, uh, not in Zambia, it's already calibrated, in Malawi, who are having discussions on how they can form a consortium so that they can be able to uh, co-invest together and have the country calibrated so that they can have the technology. So the, the, the technology, the scanner, as well as the lab in a box, is, is much more strategic than just telling you that that's just giving you a result that this is how your soil looks like. It's also data, it generates data that can help make strategic decisions, especially at national level. That was Anne Muraya talking to Mukami Gitao, Africa Business Development Manager at AgroCares. For more information on the AgroCare soil scanner, you can go to agrocares.com. Up next, we have news from MIFID's Associate Vice President, Joe Puri. You're listening to Farms Food Future with Miguel Turan and Brian Thompson. Back with us again is EFIS Associate Vice President, Dr. Joe Puri. This time we look at how the dynamics of development finance are changing and how IFAD is positioning itself for those challenges. Joe Puri told me more. So even before the pandemic, financing for the Sustainable Development Goals or the SDGs was not enough. $2.5 trillion annually was the SDG financing gap in developing countries. And now this is predicted to increase both due to the global uh, pandemic as well as because of uncertainty. The annual SDG financing gap is likely to become $1.7 trillion more. So basically a 70% increase over the 2.5 that we saw in 2020. We saw um, really um, following the pandemic that financial markets rebounded relatively quickly in developed countries. 
But in developing countries that lack traditionally the domestic financial systems to provide reserves, exacerbating problems of liquidity, for example, it led to an acceleration of global financial inequities and inequalities. Without strong local capital markets, developing countries are dealing with increased competition to seek international financing to respond to the crisis and build back better, which then further exacerbates these inequalities. Developing countries actually hold less than one-fifth of global financial assets, so less than 20%, but represent 84% of the world's population. So it's really, you know, recognizing these sorts of inequities in the overall development finance space that is causing concern, definitely for me, but also is making me think about, well, where should we go? Uh, specifically for SDG2, which is on hunger, and our overall goal to really eliminate hunger, um, there is approximately 300 to $350 billion that is required in total capital investment to finance the food and land use agenda um, uh, so that we can fill the overall needs of countries. This overall gap it seems insurmountable, especially if you account for the fact that $170 billion in additional funds for financial services is estimated as being needed to meet the demand by rural households for agricultural and non-agricultural finance alone, and that the finance gap for small and medium enterprises is also extremely large. Overall, this gap comes to approximately $33 billion a year. This is what the Ceres 2030 report reports as well. While this gap is increasing, the overall development gap, the overall gap for SDGs uh, for, NS, for SDG2, we know that official development assistance or ODA has been stagnating. Even before the pandemic, almost all countries were significantly and persistently well below the 0.7% of ODA target with an average of 0.38% in 2019. ODA is likely to decline even further because of the pandemic and fiscal deficits will likely increase with governments needing to repurpose public finance to more immediate internal recovery financing. But at the same time, we know that new sources of financing are emerging and we need to tap into those. Several calls for these have been observed. One of the most critical one has been the Addis Ababa Action Agenda in 2015, which recognizes that public investments alone would not be sufficient and emphasizes the need for leveraging more private investments. So I think we will increasingly see more blended finance and risk-sharing mechanisms that can help us crowd in private resources for the development agenda. I think development finance providers need to play a far larger role to increase efforts to maintain official development assistance budgets and keep external financing flowing, including from private investments and remittances. This requires that we scale up innovative financial approaches and tools, such as blended finance, SDG bonds, and do far more to promote digital financial services. It's also important that we promote innovative finance for sustainable development to identify potential new sources of funding for official development finance. I think it's also increasingly important to enhance the quality of development finance. It's not just the quantity that I think needs to increase, given that there's such a strain on these resources, unless we are able to ensure that finance is reaching those who need it most, so basically the last mile, and we are able to ensure transparency and accountability on where finance is going, it's going to become increasingly hard for us to mobilize this finance. There is indeed greater emphasis on now on ensuring that the metrics being used to gate finance going towards sustainability, climate, environment, social governance issues, including those by private sector, are far more tightly tied, traced, and measured. Indeed, in this space, I think IPAD has another advantage, not just with impact assessments, but also because of the fact that we use and are trialing technologies such as blockchain and that we are able to measure how much is reaching the last mile, we represent an advantage over a lot of other institutions. 
I think we are also very open to thinking about, you know, better approaches to measurement, towards results, towards verification, towards tracking and tracing. And we're exploring that already. And Joe, as as a final question, how is IFAD positioning itself for these challenges and these changes that you just outlined? Thanks, Brian. So first, IFAD has been going through a reform of its financing architecture. This has meant a number of reforms to enhance its financial soundness. Uh, there's been the capital adequacy policy, the liquidity policy, the revamped asset liability management framework, the debt sustainability framework reform, and new procedures for determining resources available for commitment. These efforts have gone really hand in hand with the development and introduction of EFAD's integrated borrowing framework, which has the goal to diversify EFAD's borrowing sources and tools. What it essentially means is that IFAD can complement its allocation mechanism um, that it uses uh, with borrowing from countries. And to implement this, um, two credit rating agencies have awarded IFAD a strong credit rating of AA+. Second, while core resources mobilized through replenishment continue to be the bedrock of IFAD, we're trying to expand our resource base by integrating other sources of finance. Um, this is, like I said already, is through the uh, integrated borrowing framework, but we're using that and leveraging our credit ratings to exploring other sources of finance that can help complement its core so that we can fulfill our commitment to expand our impact and double our impact by 2030. In addition to our program of loan and grants, through our uh, special programs such as Adaptation for Smallholder Agriculture Program, ASAP, and private sector financing programs, we are directly addressing two of the greatest development challenges of our time, climate change and opportunities for youth by leveraging the private sector. The new program, uh, Adaptation for Smallholder Agriculture Program Plus, plugs some of the financing gap for climate change adaptation. And we are thinking that, you know, this will be a $500 million program. And this is central because while the total annual climate financing is now around half a trillion dollars, only 1.7% reaches small-scale farmers in developing countries. Equally important is EFA's private sector financing program. As you may know, 80% of the world's young people live in developing countries. They are two to three times more likely to be unemployed than adults. They're also far more likely to migrate when they have no opportunities at home. In Africa, for example, 60% of young people live in rural areas. Because of this, this program is specially focused on rural youth and rural entrepreneurship and on developing small and medium-sized rural businesses. Thanks to Joe Puri. Up next, we have more from First Wave. This is Farms Food Future. Fish is Sub-Saharan Africa's favourite protein, and First Wave Group is certainly tapping into that, with its fish farming operations working from farm to plate in Zambia and Uganda. But fish farming has come in for criticism, particularly salmon farming, around health and welfare concerns. I put this to co-CEO Tembwe Mutungu. The reason that fish, and people for that matter, get sick is, is the result of stress. And so, you know, our approach is to try and grow, uh, grow the fish in a low, in a low stress environment, uh, and grow the animals in a low stress environment. And our, and our belief is that if we do that, uh, that you know, the, uh, you know, just from an animal welfare perspective, um, that uh, we will, uh, you know, ensure healthier fish and um, uh, healthier fish and healthier healthier animals. And so, you know, very specifically or a little bit more tangibly. Uh, what that means is that, again, you know, I spoke about these 25-meter diameter cages, 20 or 25-meter diameter cages. You know, we're very careful about stocking density. Um, you know, maybe you could say, well, let's try and get 300, 350,000, 400,000 fish uh, into into a cage. Um, you know, we don't think about it in that way. We actually are, are almost minimizing. Uh, the number of fish uh, that we're putting into a cage in order to ensure uh, that the 
animals are growing in a low stress environment. And this is how uh, we address fish health. We don't use antibiotics, um, you know, we don't use vaccines uh, in, you know, on Lake Karibo or on Lake Victoria uh, at the, you know, at the moment. Not that, you know, vaccines may or may not have their, have their place, uh, but for now, um, you know, we've been producing in Zambia for 10 years uh, in the absence of any antibiotics use, in the absence uh, of any vaccine, uh, vaccine use. And that is really just being driven by the animal husbandry philosophy that we've employed. Why was it you started in Uganda and Zambia? So we, we started in, in Zambia uh, in, in Zambia first. And, you know, uh, would, I would say that uh, for, uh, you know, the, the resources required in order to, to, to run a, a business of this nature for, uh, for tilapia-based aquaculture to be uh, successful uh, are uh, a warm water body, a, you know, access to, uh, access to the raw materials. So the, you know, the production, production of grains. Um, uh, the presence of uh, tilapia, particular uh, specific species that we grow, is you know, it's called nylotticus, um, and you know, not you know, you can't grow nylotticus in uh, in all water bodies for different reasons, and usually that's uh, um, you know regulatory. Um, and uh, and then again, the, you know, just the presence of some industry, uh, it doesn't have to be extensive. I mean, again, the, the industry of, as a whole is is quite nascent, uh, but again, you need to have some basis. Uh, for uh, for productions. Can you share any of your plans right now for expansion in in the short term? Yeah, in in the short term, I would say that um, <laughs> it's a very active discussion for this time of the year. Uh, sitting uh, sitting with with boards and teams and uh, and figuring out you know what is what is the strategy for next year, but all, all, you know, obviously always looking over a three five even 10 year, uh, 10 year horizon. But I'd say, you know, that in the short term, really what we're, what we're focused on doing uh, is, uh, is really just anchoring in, in, in Southern Eastern Africa. So that's on, let me say on Lake Victoria, it's not just in Uganda, so I'll leave that there for the moment, uh, but on Lake Victoria uh, and, on, and on Lake Kariba, um, we want to continue to scale uh, production in those, uh, in, in those geographies. Um, in Zambia, we've got, you know, we're producing about 10,000 tons on a, on a 30,000 ton license. And so we want to be able to grow into that license and beyond uh, over the next, uh, over the course of the next three to five years. Uh, and really, you know, uh, to be able to serve the regional market uh, from, uh, from Lake Kariba. So again, producing in Zambia, but serving Malawi, Zimbabwe, South Africa, um, you know, Southern uh, or Katanga province in the, in the DRC, uh, maybe parts of Tanzania as well. Uh, from that particular Western Tanzania, excuse me, uh, from that particular uh, particular location, uh, and then you know, as uh, as far as the East Africa East Africa is concerned, uh, we probably do want to enter uh, another another country. We haven't uh, um, made a uh, a decision on that yet, but I, I would say that the market is even deeper um, uh, deeper in in East Africa, and that does make it uh, you know make for <laughs> lots of different options. Uh, for how we would grow and expand um, in in East Africa, uh, and then you know we've we've spoken in the past, maybe thinking a little bit further out over a, a three to five year period, we've spoken in the past about our interest in in, in West Africa again. Um, you know that that is uh, you know there are many countries there uh, that, that that remain exciting exciting to us. But we will just sort of you know, take our time, make sure that we're consolidated, make sure make sure that we're um, you know. Our operations in uh, in in Zambia and or in southern and eastern Africa are uh, are are doing are doing well. That we're really serving uh, our our consumers uh, and, and really meeting the needs of those urban consumers in in in, in these markets. Uh, and then as uh, you know, as we really come to a position where you know where we feel like we're we're capturing those opportunities, we're those serving those markets, we're serving our customers, we're serving our consumers uh, in the best way possible, then we will continue to uh, to think about new geographies um, and new regions. And you can find more about them at firstwave.ag. That brings us to the end of Podcast 28. Thanks to our producer, Francesco Manetti, and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, 
brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Next month, we'll be focusing on International Women's Day and talking to gender-focused farm projects from around the world. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about all stories and the issues discussed and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcast.efad.org and send us your voice or text messages to the address and we'll be happy to play you in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of February with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Miguel Turan and the team here at EFAD. Thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.